They can get a cheerleader a lot cheaper than me. All I'm looking for in deposition of the defendant is what it is I want to start my case with. It isn't about your war with that lawyer. It's about your war with injustice and your war for justice. And I'd say don't be worried about how you can maximize your fee in any one given deal. Think about your reputation long term. This is Wisdom on Trial, impacting your life and law practice. Welcome back. Today's interview is with Sammy Cacciatore, who is a a lawyer who has been practicing law since 1967. Uh, I first met Sammy uh, when I was in college. I went to college same time as his son, and I've always been impressed by uh, how generous he is with his time, with his resources, with his knowledge. Um, for those that need a little background on Sammy, he was the uh, primary lawyer who handled the Hoffman versus Jones case in 1973 to the Florida Supreme Court, which completely changed Florida law from being a contributory negligence state to comparative negligence state. He uh, is the former president of the Florida Justice Association. He's a member of ABOTA. He was one of the Tobacco Dream Team members who uh, helped represent the state of Florida in its multi-billion dollar uh, settlement with the tobacco industry. And one of the most interesting things about Sammy that I enjoyed from this interview is the way he still has a passion to learn the law, read the law, and share the law. I really enjoyed talking with Sammy. I think you will too. Thanks. I am glad to be here with Sammy Cacciatore in his personal office, recording an interview with him, and I appreciate you taking the time. You're welcome. I watched the FJA podcast, or I listened to it, and I heard you talking about being proud as a trial lawyer, and I wanted to ask follow-up questions. So what do you mean? As far as I can remember, I wanted to be a lawyer. I think a little bit of the old Perry Mason stuff was got to me, and, and give you an idea, when my wife and I got married, her present to me, wedding present, was the book that had just been published, uh, The Man to See, the Edward Bennett Williams uh, book. That's what I thought I was going to be. You know, I, you know, my first job was a public defender. So what sparked the vision? I mean, how do you end up? My parents both were first-generation Americans. My grandfathers and grandmothers had come over earlier, and I think that was the way of the people coming over. They just wanted to do something and advance themselves. And that was something that you heard all the time. You're what? going to college. I know that myself and most of my cousins have college degrees and a second cousin, Ph.D. at the University of Tampa. I've got another cousin that was a pathologist. and I mean, it just was a you were expected to come up a little bit. What, what was it in the law? Let's, it sounds like you were going to go to college. You were going to be a professional and be driven. But what leads you in the direction of, I think I'll do law school rather than something else moving forward? It was always law. In fact, um, in the ninth grade, I was at Howard Junior High in Orlando. They did a, um, 
test uh, that was standard at that time, and the, the test was to determine where you should go. And the instructor or teacher that was giving that test took me outside the classroom and lectured me, said that, it, I think you threw this test uh, because I've checked your grades and everything else, and you should be more towards the science and not to law or uh, or history or anything of that nature. And this, this teacher, I, I remember him, he was about my height when I was in the ninth grade, but he had been a paratrooper in, uh, in, in World War II, and it was <laughs> – he was – getting on me and i said absolutely sir i did not throw that test that's always been a burning desire tell me about stetson um your connection to stetson i i first knew who you were when i knew you were a a significant benefactor of stetson i happen to also be friends with your son but what's the connection there well just wanted to go to stetson and i knew it was a much better for my family if I stayed in Orlando and went to the junior college. Um, but I went to... What is, is the Orlando Junior College the predecessor to Seminole State or Valencia? Neither. Okay. Uh, Orlando Junior College was a really a well, well-rated junior college nationally at the time. It, was a, it is now Highland Prep. And so I went there, and then I went to Deland and talked to the people there. And the registrar was uh, was very nice. Told me, you know, if I maintain this grade average and you take these courses, and they did that for me for each semester. And, and I would take at the end of each semester, I'd take my grades up there. They put it in and gave me full credit. At the then I went up to Deland, and um, I actually only spent one year there. I had earned enough credits to move on to the law school at the end of my third year, which um, gave me a kind of a head start. In- including you, how many uh, uh, people have gone through Stetson from your family? Um, my wife, uh, Sam, my law partner, and my son. Uh, actually, his wife. Uh, right now, uh, Sam's daughter is uh, is at Stetson Law. So. Oh wow! Yes. And then, uh, how was Stetson Law School for you? What was what what was the defining uh, most positive thing of law school for you? Just being there, it just it was fun. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. St. Pete is not a bad place to go to law school. No, sir. It's a great place. It really was. My wife and I had a good time on a teacher's salary, and um, it was just a a lot of fun. Uh, Everyone helped each other. It was good. So you graduate from law school in? Uh, I believe it was June 6th. I could look it up, but of 1966. Okay. And first job, if I if I remember in my preparation is public defense. Yes. Why that job? 
I wanted to be a criminal defense lawyer at that time. I, in law school, I had gone into the trial clinic, and the trial clinic at that time was limited to the defender. The, the state attorney's office was not part of that okay. statewide program. So um, I had, fortunately, I got some experience there. Uh, uh, my my trial partner was a, uh, Pete Bahuniak, uh, another uh, Stetson grad there, and uh, it was just uh, wanted to be. And I'll tell you a story that's was really sad, but I think it was I, I was one of the first people that I had to interview in the jail after I went to went to work in Orlando as a public defender was one of my best friends in high school. What? And uh, he had just got mistracked. It was just one of those things that uh, he was a good person. I'd I'd spent the nights at his house before. He just got off. And he was a had already had four small felonies, but four means you're stuck. Yeah. And uh, he actually, excuse me, it was three. He was one one less than four. It was three, and it was, and um, he decided that he, he had already served his time, and they were counting it wrong, incorrectly, at the de- the Department of, Pr- of uh, Prisons, and so he escaped. From a, from a road gang, and that's what I was talking to him about. And he gave me all the. I said, "It's your first case." It's my first case. <laughs> he got me all the paperwork, and I reviewed the paperwork, and he was right. And now he should not. So the only charge against him at this time was the escape. All he had already served his time, and all the others. So I. Took that and sat down with the state attorney, and I said, "He was right. Now, what I can do is refer this matter to, or or set him up with a private lawyer, and bring a lawsuit against you for keeping him for the extra nine months, or and I I don't remember the amount of time, but the extra time." Or you can drop this prosecution, and there will be no civil lawsuit. We worked it out. My friend ended up changing his life, became a minister, and the last I know, and I've from time to time, wow, heard from him. Haven't in the last several years, and I'm wondering if anything's happened to him. But he. Uh, Went to California and in, in a ministry and had a, a just a good life. That's awesome. That's a, that's a pretty encouraging start to the practice of law. Yes, sir. <laughs> I, just hearing that story, I'm thinking you came out of the box fighting, like, and then I think you have taken on lots of fights whether it's as the president of the FJA, which you were the president of the Florida Justice Association, which is more politics and and something you were part of the tobacco world that did the big giant uh, Florida tobacco settlement. 
but you're also a trial lawyer. I mean, you're, you try lots of cases. So if I can start in the trenches, what are some of the different fights that you've had over the years? Um, you know, early on, I was fortunate. It was just myself uh, working with Mr. Nance, and um, I got the advantage of uh, we had a, bl- a car blowout, uh, brand-new tires put on at uh, Montgomery Wars, blows out. Spouse gets killed in a, in a Corvair, and um, I get, I'm the one that went up there to Firestone and uh, watched them examine the tire and brought it back and sat with the experts and learned what I could about tires. How, how long of a lawyer had you been at that point? Ballpark. Well, that would have been, I came here in 67 to, to, to Melbourne with Booty. Uh, so that and that was probably two or three years after that. So you're like yeah. a third year lawyer, yeah, with a products liability case flying up to do inspections, mm-hmm. drafting the complaint. You know, there were complaints that I had drafted when I was working with the personal injury firm of uh, uh, Buildings in Frederick. One of those cases ended up in our in our lap here later in time and uh, there was actually two of the two of those cases one of them was Jones and the other one was the a, a case that involved uh, a missile a, a rocket that was in the um, prep room for sending a, a weather satellite up and at the end of the day they went to put the polyethylene bags over the rocket and that if you think about it when you you're at home on a cold winter day and you feel the plastic on your suit or your shirts or something and you hear hear the crinkle and the electricity well that's what happened and it sent the electricity right down through the center of that rocket and it ignited in that in that room and i was help i was working on that case with mr nance and uh, actually, you, you still call him Mr. Nance? No, I'm just uh, <laughs> being uh, respectful. He's yeah, your law partner yeah, for 52 yeah, years. Yeah. That, How about he's booty? Yes. He's booty. How okay. do you spell booty? B O O T Y. Let me tell you a little bit about this rocket, if you don't mind. Yes, please do. Um, the U.S. government paid for, uh, I think it was Cornell. Leon Hanley was one of the defense lawyers. You talked about him. But the plaintiff's lawyers were Bill Hicks. I mean, I Colson could, Hicks in Miami. Yeah, yeah. They had two of the cases. We had one. They were just the cream of the of the plaintiff's bar at that mm-hmm. time. It it was unreal. I'm there watching it and learning everything we could, and we finally it got settled in in federal court before the federal judge there, who then lectured the U.S. government for letting it occur. <laughs> <laughs> Those lectures are nice. <laughs> it was, it, 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 he, he was a good judge. If you were to just spitfire advice, and we're talking technical areas of the law, okay, depositions, hearings, judges, and I'm just going to start naming things, and you can just give me your, This is these are my thoughts on it. Okay, whatever wisdom, mm-hmm. whatever concepts, tactics, whatever comes to your head. So we'll start with depots. Okay. On depots, let me just take as an example of uh, a traffic accident. I 
don't do it anymore because I've lived in this town for so many years. I know every intersection in town. I don't have to do it. But if I don't know an intersection before the depot, I'm going to go out there and look at it. I'm going to I'm going to watch it. I'm going to, I may may just do it from the car, drive through it, may park it, and go walk around. I think that's important for a depot. I want to know the background and which and try through investigators get as much as we can, so that the deposition goes smoothly. It's, I think it's a lot better to be prepared than to try to wing it. How about uh, dealing with recalcitrant opposing counsel, difficult, annoying, obnoxious opposing counsel? Don't let it get under your skin, which is hard to do. And when you start getting their responses to interrogatories and requests to produce and everything, just be sure, you know, don't do a, a skimpy motion to compel. Be a lawyer and and uh, get a good motion and with good citations in it. After a while, you'll have a whole uh, set of filing cabinets with these are the motions for this and the motions for that. And, and so it's, it's again, it's, it's the preparation that goes in it. Okay. Uh, next up would be persuading the opposition, whoever is the opposition, whether it's the other lawyer, uh, corporate client, a whatever it is. Some you can't persuade. And you, and, and you know that from experience, and it's not even, don't even bother. Uh, the rest of the time is you can sit down with the opposition, set out your facts. If, if you've got a good rapport with the other person and he or she tells you something and you know from experience they're telling you the truth and you tell them the truth, you try to talk it out and see if you can work it out, that you can come to some agreement. But it's sometimes on our side, we have a little bit more control over our client. On, on the defense side, some of them don't have the control that they that they really need. They just there's a, a small minority group that just want to be. I know the category you're talking about. Just do your job and don't and, and don't push back on them because all they it's a, all it's going to do is get them to do something more. Just you get it done. <laughs> Persuading juries, they have to believe you. Let me let me. Um, Early on in my career, I was at a seminar, and I think it was put out at, by the American, well, ATLA at the time, now the American Justice Association. And I remember this. They put a program on about dressing and appearance and uh, how impact that has on the jury and the, and the judge. So... Um, I went to that seminar, and then there was—I um, read two or three books, and I always remember one thing. In one of the books, and it was a psychologist that had written it, is if you were going into a bank to get a loan, to borrow a home loan, don't wear a green suit. Don't wear a chocolate uh, brown suit. If you're going to do, wear a tan suit, blue suit. Make your wardrobe fit the occasion. If it's a hard-nosed uh, expert witness up there, wear a white shirt, something to kind of just be uh, 
Ready for battle? Ready for battle. How about uh, opening and closing? My dress for opening and closing are both the same. It's going to be low-key, blue shirt or white shirt, khaki suit, just something that the jury wants to accept you as just another person there as opposed to thinking you're trying to outdress them or you're trying to do whatever to overpower them. You sound very, very intentional. What else are you intentional about? Just about everything. I mean, I try to work things out. I, I, it, um, You're generally strategic when you yeah. approach situations. Yes. Well, I'm going to be strategic, and I I want it. I want to hear every single detail about Hoffman versus Jones. And I could, if I were to pick, other than uh, wanting to know your wisdom, that would be the case that I really want to hear about. But. I believe that you've told the story really well in the FJA podcast, so anybody that wants to listen to that, not that I don't want mm-hmm. to talk about it, but what I most want to talk about about the case is what it was like for you personally in the journey. In other words, less the, we know it changed the law in Florida and really impacted the country. What was that like for you? It was just a regular case. It happened to be something that was fortuitous in my mind. Mr. Jones, my recollection right now, if I going back and thinking, he was NASA, and he was on the night shift. This is back when we were shooting a lot of rockets up into the air, trying to get things. Early seventies, late sixties. Oh, this would have been in the late sixties. It would have been in sixty-eight or so when this would have happened. And north of Melbourne, here, US one coming down. He's he's in the um, outside lane, southbound, uh, and there's a, I think, I don't know what time it was. It was in the morning, and there is a, a pit, a sand pit off to the west, and as he is coming down this big double axle dump truck, and I know what it was because that's what I did when I was in college during the summer, drive dump trucks. And he pulled out, and when he pulled out, he did not stay in that, in that right lane, so that when Mr. Jones went to the, uh, went to the left lane, the whole road was, was blocked, and he ran into the, into the back of it. And they tried to blame Mr. Jones. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they tried to blame Mr. Jones, and he, uh, there was no evidence of speed. There really Nothing. wasn't Nothing. It was, it was not a valid defense. So Was we, it a valid defense? Contributory negligence at that time is what they argued. Did you believe, though, no. factually that your guy no. did anything wrong? No, I did not think okay. he did anything wrong. From what, and, the poli- and the Ohio Patrolman was very favorable in his investigation he, because he's the one that showed how far the truck went into the other lane that blocked them both off. So— we try. I try the case, and and at the time, if one percent fault gets on Mr. Yeah, Jones, yeah. he has no right no, to the, have the jury no to determine right. how at fault the defendant was, and they don't have to pay one cent, even if they're ninety nine percent at fault. Right. Then it was bad law. Yeah, bad law. Uh, then it was a situation that uh, the judge directed a verdict at the close of the plaintiff's case saying that it, uh, it, it, it didn't need to go to the jury. 
So you're at the courthouse. You're in the middle of a trial. The evidence has gone in. Yeah. Are you through the end of the defense case? No. It's at the end of your case. Yeah. Direct and they verdict. say he doesn't have enough evidence. Yeah. The contributory part of it, the judge finds him to be contributory negligence and cuts it off. Did you ever see that happening when you were prepping for trial? I never thought so. No. But I came down here and I was kind of upset and I... And I talked Booty, you know, let me take an appeal. So I took it to the 4th District Court. We did not have the 5th at the time. No 5th District. No 5th District. Okay. And, but I went down to the 4th. And the appellate court immediately reversed it. Within months, we had an opinion wow. that said it should have gone to the jury. Did you realize at that time we're, we're making law? No, because I was going to come back and retry it and win. But I came back and retried it and lost. That's when I went to Booty and said, Booty, we already appealed it one time. Uh, it's going to be another record, whatever. You know, the cost of the appeal. He says, go ahead and do it. So was the first decision just there shouldn't have been a directed verdict? Yeah. yeah. That was it. It wasn't addressing the legal question on whether contributory fault was still going to be the law. Yeah. So now I come back and I try it, and I lose the case. The jury finds against us. So that's when I say, I want, to, I want to go and try to establish this thing. Booty says, it's not going you know, to cost that much. Uh, you're doing the work, and I wanted to. Uh, a professor at Stetson had put that kernel into my mind, that little seed, and it, it constantly worked on it. And so, Literally about that law? That law. When uh, you were in law school? Yeah, uh, Frank Booker was the torch instructor. I'm pretty sure he was from Illinois. And uh, Frank always talked about that, how unfair it was. Illinois had passed the legislation, then the court had struck it down. And so, so I, I went all the way back to the case in England in um, 1809, I think it is. And I can tell you there was... That's when uh, the idea that you know recovery if you're partially at fault. Like old English law. Yeah, old English law. My argument was different than a lot of them would have been. I, I put the fairness part of it to the end. I showed how the United States had adopted that, uh, all of English law at the time. And so part of my argument was that that was judge-made law a long time ago. It's no longer the law in England here and it should be changed and and then I went into the fairness and actually Prosser had written about contributory negligence I quoted him somewhere and did the research went to the fourth district court of appeals and they bought it they then took it to the supreme court at that point are you realizing this is a little more epic than just one case at that time I was a little bit nervous because the fourth district had usurped their authority to make it. But um, we argued it, uh, and you probably heard this part of it on, on the FJA uh, podcast. I'm standing up there, and— um, How old are you, like, at that point? How many year lawyer? So you, if you started in 66, this is what year? I was probably a four-year four lawyer. A four-year lawyer? Probably, yeah. In front of the Florida Supreme Court? Yeah. Arguing Hoffman versus Jones. Yeah. 
and, and Justice Atkins says to ask me a question. Let me ask you, why is it we should change this law? I mean, it's been the law for so long. And I said, well, with all due respect to this court, I don't, don't mean to, to be flippant. I've furnished you with the law that I think shows why we need to do this. And if you would look on this side of the courtroom, there are no one in the pews, in the seats. You look on this side of the courtroom, look how many rows I, they, of lawyers is there. There's 108, I think it was, 108 or 106 amicus. We, but by do, 106. Well, well, the thing is, it's not that many different. But I yes. counted up all the railroad yes. companies, yes. all the trucking companies, yes. and everything else that were involved. These are national. <laughs> they cared. It was a very important it issue was, to them. There was a national situation, corporate yes. America, insurance companies. Who was fighting on behalf of the consumers, the people? Just me. <laughs> me and, and, and Booty. And, uh, and a man named Booty. And, uh, and Justice, uh, Justice um, Atkins says, I say fine. <laughs> he did cross me after that, but he gave me that opportunity to point that out. Well, uh, that law was impactful, uh, Hoffman yep. versus Jones, and now is 47 states, something like that? Or something like that. Some yeah. very high number of yep. states. It's yep. been cited in the California Supreme Court. It's very impactful. Um, and it sounds like you did that as a four-year lawyer, which is just astonishing, but I know that you were thrown into things young, like you didn't come out and slowly tiptoe your feet into different areas of the law. I think, I think that's somewhat accurate. I remember some professors at Stetson that uh, had a lot of fun with. Um, you probably knew the one professor that you had that I had, Kinzel. Did you you have? He was there, but I had Swagger. Okay. Yes. But you know about Kinsel. He was a legend. He, he was, was a legend. legend back then. And I remember him throwing things back at me. Thought processes. Okay. Always had some comeback for whoever the student was that was the target at yes. that day. At that time, I was going to be a criminal defense lawyer, and and we were talking we talked about contracts or something, and he would he would say, well. Isn't isn't someone's contract and money just as important as their life? And I, I told him, not necessarily. <laughs> or, or you know, we would tangle with him. He was just that way. So, sounds like you and Professor Kunzel may have had uh, differing worldviews as a potential. Heck, actually, not really. Okay. He just he loved to poke at me. Yes. Is that how you raise your son? No. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about that. Your your son is a successful lawyer. He's a board certified civil trial yeah. lawyer, and then he works for you, and then actually becomes your business partner. Probably the greatest thrill was um, when he and I tried a case together, and he was he was first chair, and the hardest thing for me to do was to sit on my hands in the courtroom and let him try the case. <laughs> Instead, of, you know, I was I was second chair. I mean, we prevailed, and uh, uh, Judge Evander called us up at, at to the bench, and he says, "It's been hard for you, hasn't it, Sammy?" <laughs> <laughs> what did What did you do to keep your self control and your impulses in check? 
I don't know how I did it, but I did it. <laughs> I think it was just I wasn't going to – it wasn't before the jury going to show that Sam was not what he was already. I, you I made just, up your mind before you yeah. went in there, I am I'm going to – Yeah. This is his case, and I'm here to support him. Yeah, I'm 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 the second chair. That's that's cool. What a privilege. Let me shift gears for a minute, and this is not the questions I was committed to ask you, but one I want to ask you is: uh, Your firm was part of the tobacco deal, and I know a lot of that was Booty Nance, and you were part of that too. But when you look back at the the journey of a bunch of crusading trial lawyers who represent the state of Florida (laughs) against big tobacco at a time where no one ever thought something like that. And you being on the inside of that for a lot of years, what, what lessons for someone like me, let's say, or anyone, what did that, that experience teach you about people? You know, the experience that I saw in, uh, was that Trial lawyers have somewhat of an ego, and I knew all these people, but you didn't see the ego coming out in them at at that time. It was just they're doing their job, and it was really kind of interesting to watch that. Almost like the old Olympics dream team with... Magic Johnson and and Larry Bird. I mean, in many ways, that was the plaintiff's trial lawyers group with all of those, Yared and W.C. Gentry yeah, yeah. and you guys and... Fred Levin, the uh, the group out of South, North Carolina. They were oh, working with Motley with Rice. Motley, yeah, Motley Rice. <laughs> and the thing is, is that every one of us, have, we all have great talents, but every one of us have a... Some talents are better, more than other talents, and yeah. you could watch the different people. Just you saw the best of everyone. Yes, that's that's awesome. If if you were to give advice, I'm going to take two different sets of people, and the first set is visualize a, a young lawyer. Uh, don't worry about age because it can be all different phases. But think like they've been practicing three to ten years. Okay, they now have their first job. They're trying to figure this out. If you could give them advice on the journey, what would you give them? In that era time, I think the, the young lawyer is still learning. And, and I would then say, keep up what you've been doing and go to seminars. It's the practice of law, not the business of law. It, uh, Become good at your craft. Yeah. Practice it. Listen to the what other people are doing. What how are they handling certain issues? Here in Florida, we have the FJA. Become involved with the FJA. If you're in another, if you're listening to this and you're from another state, you have an organization. Get involved with the organization because you can learn a lot from the organization, and you can then use those skills as you go along. It's going to come a time when you're going to feel comfortable, and then you may be personally doing something that's different than the rest that works better, and they'll pick up from you. 
What most concerns you when you think of that age bracket watching the practice law? Because you still actively practice law. I mean, you you were actively litigating, handling, signing up cases, trying cases. So when you look at the legal world in that age bracket, three years to 10 years, what most concerns you? And if you could fix it, how would you fix it? Well, I would say this. Having gone through it, you get a little cocky. And you need to have someone hit you hit you <laughs> so that you lose it, and then you're back on track and you're going again. Um, it's one of those things you you start winning and you start thinking you're in you're just invincible, feeling invincible. invincible. It, it, you've got this uh, invincible shield invisible shield protecting you yes. it's not true it, you're gonna misstep and, i had those those occasions yes and what did you do if there is something you did to get out of it just recognize it i mean that's it you have to recognize i've just gotten a little bit too cocky it's i find it distasteful in my mouth when i recognize that i did too <laughs> <laughs> and if you don't, then you're not going to be as successful as you could be. Yes. Let's take a different age group. Let, let's take, say, uh, 40 years old to 50. They're now practicing law. There's someone like somewhere in your son's age. If you were to give advice to that age bracket. That age bracket usually has gotten over the cockiness. They're doing a good job. There's not much they can do. Uh, it, more it's just to them all i would say is for me all it was for me that from from about that time on was keep my skills up keep just because i have been reading florida law weeklies i'm not going to stop the best thing you is is to go into the courtroom with the freshest law um why why does that matter because that's where you win or lose. You convincing the judge with with the law, and I, uh, I think every trial lawyer should have an academic side. How about those of us that aren't that smart? Y'all are everyone's. <laughs> that that that's, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bite on that. <laughs> if you get out of law school. You're smart enough to find the law. And, and the law is easy if you just take the time regularly, once a week or every, every two weeks, go and see what is the new stuff. Either go to the FJA site that says that, that shows the, the cases that are coming out, or Florida Law Weekly. Look at that. What I hear is no excuses, man. That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right. If you were taking that same age group and looking at what, what most troubles you about that 40 to 50, it most bothers you about that, and, and if you could diagnose it and fix it. I, don't, I, I, I think the only thing I would say is I see a lot in that age group start backing at, off of being involved in, with either the Florida Bar or FJA or stuff like that. 
I, that's the one thing I've, I've seen, and, and I've seen myself pull away. Uh, well, you're not in the age bracket no, of 40 to 50 no, anymore. That's, that's it. <laughs> you stayed, yeah, you stayed yeah, engaged yeah, yeah, in all yeah. of that way longer than the average. Yeah. I've only been – I'm still engaged, but I'm, I'm yes. not engaged to the extent I was. I mean, uh, I don't – go to a lot of the board meetings anymore for the FJA, um, primarily because they have most of those big things in the summer, and on the summer, I'm on that, on that boat. <laughs> <laughs> As you should. Uh, let, let me ask you this question. Um, from a, a concern about the general practice of law you seem positive like i don't you don't seem to be to be looking around trying to find problems but specifically what you see in the practice of law that most concerns you it's it's the thing when you're thinking things are not going in the right direction if you could again just say what it is and then say here's how i think we fix it well i think one of the things that bothers me is the way that we now are having in-house corporate law firms. Uh, I, I just don't understand how the bar has allowed that to happen, where a corporate insurance company is going to have a division of lawyers because then... The, the conflicts of interest. The interest. Just, that's just yeah. That, that's just and it. the legal. It's, the it's like they they parse the words and look for ways to rationalize something. Yep. That in the end, why? It, it's a conflict it, of interest. It, it's a total conflict of interest, and that lawyer is in such a conflict situation. Uh, you need to tell a client this is what needs to be done, but the person above me says this is what I've got to do. And it's it's until that's corrected, I think that's that to me is the, the, the thing that I see because it's happening with the insurance industry. It's gonna it's gonna be happening in the corporate world where the corporate where the legal department of the corporation is no longer giving advice but having to follow the instructions of the board. The instructions of the board. Let me shift gears a little bit. And and I'm talking yeah. real life experiences mm -hmm. I've had, you've had. What if you have invested a lot of time, money, and resources, and now you have a client where you're feeling a, a break? You want yeah. closure for them, or you believe there's something in their best interests, and they're acting against their own best interest in the way they're interacting yeah. with you, in the in the advice they're giving to you. You know, I try to I try to work with them on that. I also try at the. At, when we're if if by chance we can get into a mediation, uh, I I would work at getting a definitely good mediator, one that I would think thinks like I do, wants to help. It just one of the, the, the mediators that are really good, and let them know the issue because. Good mediators of that caliber will uh, honor the the conversation and not not what? do something they would put you put the lawyer in the bind. Last area I wanted to ask you about was um, how you feel 
about being a trial lawyer, how you feel about yourself, because many people who are um, in the profession of doing contingency work for people that were injured, no matter what kind of case it is, sometimes um, we feel marginalized in a weird kind of way. How do you feel about that, having journeyed for a lot of years and fought a lot of battles and seen victory and seen pain? I uh, I don't let it bother me. I just know what I'm doing is the right thing. And uh, you can go back to the Constitution. You can go back to the to England. You can go back to some of the fights that humanity has had in order to, to have a good balanced world in which we don't have right now but I just look at things on the rosy side as opposed to the other side and it keeps me going if you were to say the last thing if there was a message if you were to say something out into the world a message that you wanted to say out what would it be instead of the world to to law students or lawyers be proud of your profession you are helping people. A lawyer is the value of a doctor. Doctors save lives. Lawyers also save lives by what they do for the, for the people. I will hear that and receive that. Thank you for your generosity with my time. Thank you for your generosity with Stetson, which is where I went for college and law school. Thank you for your generosity with the Florida Justice Association, which I stand on all the hard work that you did. And thank you for uh, being a good dad to someone that I really uh, think is an awesome guy, your son, Sam. So thank you. Well, you're welcome. And I've enjoyed it. And I can tell you, I've enjoyed being a lawyer.